economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We also have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, our other graduate assistant, Luke Graham. All right. Today we have with us uh, guest listeners. The guest is Tho Bishop of the Mises Institute. He's the assistant editor for the Mises Wire and also the host of his own podcast. And though you can correct me if I've got the wrong name here. I think it's the Redneck Riviera. And also a proud Florida man. Though, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So a few weeks ago, we talked about the dangers of democracy, and we kind of moved around to uh, focus on, well, what can we do? We, we all kind of noticed that the way American politics is trending is away from the American promise. And we focused on this problem, and we wanted to talk about some fixes for that. And one of the things that I like about you, I followed you on social media for years after we met originally at the Mises Institute, and I like that you provide what is an interesting and different view, but also consistent views. You're not reading from anybody else's playbook. You have your own specific strategies, and I can always make sense of them after the fact, but I can never predict exactly what you're going to say. And so I've, I've always found that interesting because I think in, in our space, a lot of people you know, are basically just following marching orders. And so I'm curious about your vision of improving politics for the future, and I think the listeners would be interested as well. Thank you for those kinds of words. That means a lot. Well, basically what I've been searching around for a while now is that, you know, I grew up in a very political family, kind of traditional Republican Party structure. My father was the campaign manager when Newt Gingrich first made it to D.C. My mom was the first Republican field woman for the party here. So I came from that sort of traditional background before I got in. I had my Ron Paul movement and uh, found myself just fascinated by Austrian economics and the entire academic you know, tradition of that sort of necessity and perspective. And then you get the Trump era which, you know, completely disrupts everything. And one of the things I recognize is that a lot of people in my community here in Panama City Beach, Florida, a lot of the people that, you know, were historically the most interested, you know, most upset about local corruption, the most, that kind of the Tea Party crowd that would read deeply about the Founding Fathers and would go beyond, you know, talk radio sound bites. They were all Trump supporters. And that was the first time I really recognized that, okay, there's something going on here. It's not just this, you know, clownish spectacular of a reality show host running for president. Like, there's something here that's resonating with the people that I've found myself, you know, most at home with politically. And, and that's brought us the last four years. And I, I think that, so what I've been trying to outline is, for one, recognizing the extent of where power really resides in America, but also the world today. This is you know, kind of, I've been very influenced by like Michael Malice making more popular some of the kind of the, the malicious mole bug, Curtis Yarvin sort of critiques on the cathedral. And, and really it's the concept of the combination of academia, the corporate press and state government, you know, the powers of the state to project, you know, kind of this, this progressive left-wing takeover of institutions and recognizing that this is part of larger global sphere of the centralization of power that we saw throughout the, the 20th century, and then recognizing that it is populist movements that have 
proven to be the biggest headaches for this gradual sort of technocratic centralization of power. And therefore, there's aspects of populism. And you see this, you know, within aspects of the populist right that I find very dangerous and the rejection of economics, you know, kind of some of the, the, the illiberal trends with, that you can always find in any sort of political movement. And I've been frustrated by the lack of serious engagement with a lot of libertarians, a lot of people that kind of came out of that Ron Paul movement that inspired me trying to act like we don't have to get, you know, being dismissive of the Trump movement, trying to act like, you know, left and right don't matter politically, that our advantage is trying to transcend the culture wars that really end up motivating a lot of average people. And I think that if we miss this opportunity where there is this profound mistrust of governing institutions, which can be a good thing when the institutions are so corrupt, but it's also dangerous the degree to which you have institutions fail, that opens up the, the opportunity for horror. You can get you know, I mean, French Revolution, reign of terror sort of outcomes from this moment of time of crumbling institutions. And so I've been trying to identify you know, what I think are, are offer real solutions to these problems. And luckily, I think the Mises Institute is one of the, the institutions out there dedicated to kind of really the questions of civilization. And, and I think that I've been trying to get, trying to hope that libertarians take some of this stuff a lot more seriously than kind of retreating to very kind of the, the bumper sticker sort of slogans of taxation of theft and sort of you know, these things that it gets us high fives from ourselves within this movement, but it's sterile politically. Um, because if we don't engage with people that are not libertarians, then we are going to, whatever the outcome, whoever wins this, these larger political battles, if libertarians aren't engaging with them seriously on their own grounds, the outcomes are going to be less libertarian than what it would be otherwise. And so it's kind of a long, uh, kind of self-serving sort of a positioning there, but that's kind of where yeah, I'm coming from. No, 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 that was great. But I, I was wondering if you could drill down a little bit more for our listeners who Ron Paul doesn't really resonate with them. You know, there's either lukewarm Republicans, lukewarm Democrats, whatever, that are just, what does that mean to you the, of kind of a Ron Paul type of movement that you well, went through? Ron Paul was such a fascinating <laughs> figure in modern American politics because the 20th century, I think, is defined by the fact that kind of, kind of the removal of ideologues, right? And Ron Paul was always kind of a rejection of that. You know, he was a guy motivated to, to run for Congress because of monetary policy, which, you know, usually isn't sort of mobilizing thing. And, you know, he was country doctor that was just a good person within this community. I mean, the reason he was able to be a successful congressman is because he delivered 4,000 babies. And that kind of helps when you're comes comes time to collect <laughs> votes. right? And, you know, he was just a guy that he was an intellectual, you know, he, his entire goal in Congress is try to help elevate awareness of Austrian economics, the works of Louis von Mises and Murray Rothbard and kind of this heterodox school of classically liberal inspired economics, you know, kind of that Jeffersonian sort of Jacksonian tradition, a lot of ways. And it was just the earnestness with which he spoke, you know, he, he wasn't delivering canned sound bites, you know, he, he was dealing seriously with issues in a way that so few politicians in the modern world do. And it, it awakened not just people wanting to go out and vote for him, but it encouraged college students to go out and read 600 page books. And that's something I think is unique in politics. And you know, th those, those ideas, I think, are so important. I think that, you know, that tradition that he represented motivates me. I mean, that's, that's how Peter and I met. You, know, you don't have that aspect in politics a lot, but that alone being right isn't enough. And that's where you have to learn from the Trump movement as well and, and recognize that there's going to be a lot of people that are never going to read those 600 page books. How do we get the people that do earn the trust of those who won't 
so that you can have the political action necessary to move any sort of society one way or another, which I think we would definitely need some society pushed back uh, right now with some of the things going on. So another thing that has interested me about your kind of recent focus has been your your focus on local politics. And we, we talk actually a lot in this program about the need for local action. Can you explain what you're doing kind of uh, on a, a local level to you know, work on these ideas that you're, you're talking about. Give us some examples. Yeah. Well, well, political decentralization is something I've always thought as just kind of, you know, this is the old, old school federalist framework of what this country is supposed to be. And you still see it work out really great in Switzerland, which is something that I think libertarians kind of in general could, could benefit from pointing to because like that's a functioning structure of government that prioritizes keeping power locally and reverting the least amount of it to the federal level. And that's, that's, a, that's an important thing. But I became kind of a lot more radicalized in this issue the last 16 months because, you know, I was a big fan of Ron DeSantis when he came in. But, you know, the degree to which the quality of my life has been benefited by the fact of 33,000 votes in a governor's race. You know, that alone is a difference between me living in, you know, one of the freest parts of the developed world and living in New York. (laughs) Yeah, Florida would look a lot different, wouldn't it? And it's one man's judgment there. And it's interesting talking to people here locally, people consider themselves Floridians now kind of more than, than ever before, right? There's kind of like that, that state pride. But then it's, you know, once you see it, though, it's, it's not simply, of course, the state level that matters, the, the local level, you know, the degree to which, I mean, I have, a, I have a buddy that a few years ago, he started taking his video camera and going to local city council meetings and recording the meetings that were going on and just doing the breakdown of all of the you know, the degree to which, you know, why are taxes rising out? It's because of these deals and the court, and the, you know, the cronyism so baked into local politics, you know, the, these sort of issues that I think mobilize a lot of people in politics, you know, concerns about taxes, concerns about regulation. You, we, we often get so distracted at the circus of the federal level, which we have very little impact. I mean, if you're a member of Congress, you have very little impact because of the way the system works now. It's so leadership driven, so lobbyist powered, all that sort of stuff. All those same questions play out you know, every two weeks at your city council meeting. And there, you know, having one voice in those meetings can have a major impact. I mean, you get 20 people to show up to a city council meeting voicing outrage about a single issue. You know, that's something that to make the voter, you know, those five city council members change their mind. 20 people emailing your congressman has no impact at all. And, you know, alternatively, it also gonna, is going to mean that the outcomes of city governments, we're not always going to agree. You know, the, the city government of Berkeley, California should look very different than the city government of Panama City Beach, Florida. And that's OK. And I think that what we have playing out is this larger political zeitgeist of politics as war by other means. The left kind of really recognizes, you know, the, the, the importance of conquering these institutions. The right is perhaps waking up to that a little bit. But you're, you're going to have this battle over over dominion so long as power is centralized. If the more that's localized, if democracy you know, the, the champions of democracy do so under the guise of political self-determination. And I respect that aspect of it, but that only works when you're in dealing with political bodies, you know, where your vote actually matters. And, and so it matters on a structural lens. It matters on what you can do as an individual. And then even the, the way that you can have a direction within political parties by at organizing at, you know, at your county level, passing, you know, resolutions, doing organization, you know, it's the local level where if you really want to get involved in the actual process of politics properly, rather than simply talking about it on social media, it's the local level where you can have so much impact. And again, too often we seem distracted by the the shiny objects on cable news. So I had a question. I'm really enjoying what 
you've been talking about so far. And I think you're right on the money with this kind of reorganization of politics that's going on and also ways to strategically try to use that reorganization. But I was wondering if you could talk about maybe some specific issues that you think can today be issues that can unite, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, the nerd right, you know, the monetary right, uh, the populist right, and maybe even pull in some people from, you know, the crunchy granola left. So, you know, specific issues that you think, you know, would be worth talking about at a city council meeting. I do think that the last 16 months for all of the chaos has created, you know, the the hot bucket is, and we see there's nothing that activates certain people more than going after their children, right? And and so, you know, the, the aspects going on, I have some concern that the critical race theory focus could end up kind of creating its own kind of sterile path with the focus on those three words, critical race theory. So, oh, well, we banned those words. And, and then some of the, the, the real nature there, which is weaponizing American school curriculums to make Americans hate America, right? And that the values that America was founded upon. The side conversation about the role of, of the government and, and schools and all that sort of side, fine. But so long as we have public education, the fi- that's so long as public education is the way that the majority of families rely upon for educating their children, the way that we educate the narrative of history matters. And so that's one issue that has really awakened a lot of activist energy there. Some of the practical steps within that, for example, here in Florida, it's a very minor move, but this year they passed teaching about the victims of communism as a social science mandate, because you already, there's a side question about whether, you know, what role should you have statewide mandates and curriculums, but you already had things like, you know, teaching about the Holocaust mandated in civil curriculums in Florida. And I always thought that it was very important to get communism taught right alongside because there, at least when I was in high school, you know, the way we, we taught about, learned about communism was in the context of like the Cold War kind of geopolitics. You don't talk about the body count the same way you do with the Holocaust. Like, I think that's one of the things like just in the margin there kind of matters. And so I think the education side is one of it. Obviously, the issues of medical freedom, which is kind of sparking a lot of stuff. I know in, in Iowa, uh, Jeff Shipley, a state weapon Des Moines, has been on fire on that issue. I mean, that's something that's mobilizing a lot. But I also think that one of the real untapped issues, and I think it's something that's going to change with what we've seen play out, you know, last six months in particular, is the role of the Fed and inflation as one of those kitchen table issues. Because you can never take a leftist seriously if he talks, if they talk about their concern about income inequality, and yet, ha, you know, don't, doesn't have an opinion on the Fed, you know, or thinks that the answer is just printing money and sending it to people or have, you know, have some sort of, of crude, you know, watered down, you know, MMT sort of style things, because there's no greater driver of inequality. There's nothing that rewards the, the, the speculative class, financial class at the, at the expense of the working class more than inflation, the policy of the central bank. You know, 50 years anniversary last week of the collapse of the last remnants of the gold standard system. And, and I think this goes to not only an important thing, just as that kitchen table cost of living, co- you know, increase aspect and, and the, the class aspect of that. But I think it also plays into what I think has been one of the biggest deficiencies of capitalism which is the degree to which its defenders have grounded their defenses of capitalism through purely materialistic grounds. And I, I don't want to dismiss the importance of cheap stuff. Like if you're poor, cheap stuff is a world changer. I mean, I'm not diminishing that importance, but that, that itself isn't enough, particularly when you consider the fact that just quality of life of your average American has gone up significantly because of changes that have emerged you know, globally, technologically since the 90s, right? You know, we've been able to have government spend out the wazoo because they haven't had to deal with the fact that money actually matters because of this sort of, you know, period of 
post Greenspan monetary policy and that sort of stuff. The asp- the reason why free markets are great though is not simply the fact that it creates cheap stuff for the masses, but it's because it actually creates and rewards an ethical framework for society. And one of the biggest crimes of the past century is that we have created an economic system, you know, emerging from, you know, inspired by Keynes and political expediency that rewards short-term decision-making. And when civilization itself is grounded in the idea that you plant trees that your grandsons are going to benefit from, we have penalized the people that have that sort of time preference by rewarding short-term decision-making. If we want to talk about civilization and these ideas on creating a moral foundation or whatever the right likes to talk about, if you don't recognize the way that inflation and the central bank has created this cultural decay, you're not diving seriously enough into the issue of this significance. And so that's one area that I'm trying to really wake the populace right up to, because this is on so many levels that they've identified as being so important. They just need the economics. And the problem is, is that you know, there's been this issue over time where people don't believe economics is a real science. They think it's political propaganda. And so if they believe that your, your desired outcomes are different than theirs, they're just going to disregard you entirely. That's one of the things that we just need to change intellectually as a society. Yeah, wow, that's a that's a powerful statement. Certainly something that the Gortney Institute here is working on. That's why we have Justin, our philosopher, as part to bring out some of those important aspects of capitalism that I agree with you. And that was a, a big statement there on that. We've had a little too much emphasis maybe on the material things. Well, this looks like a good spot for our break here. And so when we come back, we'll continue to build on that. And I'm kind of wondering if at, at, if there's some point at which the Fed is too big that it's going to take something where we can't start to slowly slide back the other way to road to serfdom. We need to, uh, uh, it's going to end up in something ugly of a revolution. And I, I hope we're not there yet, but I'd like to get your thoughts on that. And we'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordon Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. <laughs> The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have a great uh, dual credit microeconomics course for high school students that are looking to achieve some high school credit, and they can check with their institutions to see if it can count towards high school credit and college credit. We'd love you to come to Ottawa University and check out what we have to offer, uh, but these credits will be transferable to other places too. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123propertysucks.org. All right, and we're back. So left a little cliffhanger here. Have we gone too far with Fed power? Where do you think we're at in terms of being able to realistically chip away with some of these things and convince some minds to to keep us on a path of liberty. The good thing is that, again, I think that this distrust of federal institutions is very, very real. And one of the things I've been surprised about is the degree to which it has spread. And historically, the left was supposed to be like the question of authority people, obviously, you know, today's world doesn't quite work out that way. But it's interesting with the conservatives because the, the approval rating of Congress as a whole has been very, very low for a long time now, which never quite works out in primaries, but neither here nor there. The, the executive branch has always been very polarizing with the way that it's been viewed based on the party in office. 
But now you're starting to see a weathering away of faith in the Supreme Court. Part of that is due to the fact, I mean, some of the, the cases that they fail to take up after Trump, you know, Trump gets too, you know, I, I can understand conservatives losing faith in the, that institution uh, on top of some of the, the election lawsuits. You have the aspect of the military, the, the pronounced wokeism of that with kind of the Tucker Carlson sort of critiques there, you know, the lack of trust in the FBI based on the way that they've conducted themselves and other intelligence agencies and things like that. Again, regardless of one's views on what, what has motivated the distrust of these institutions, you know, regardless of your, your, com- your, your thoughts on the 2020 election or anything like that, what's important is simply the fact that that lack of trust exists. And it's very difficult for, you know, it's, it's interesting on the right right now, there has been the kind of this growing pushback against democracy as a concept. I think there's, there's a lot of valid critiques there. You know, it's, it's, you shouldn't be worshiping the altar of majority opinion. But I think one of the aspects, though, of the federal regime that exists now is simply how undemocratic it is. And I think people are waking up to that fact that, you know, we vote in these elections, congressmen change, you know, Speaker of the House changes, the president changes, but a lot of the issues that, the left and right have problems with the federal government. They, their outcomes might be very, very different, but they kind of all don't like what's going on now. And it's highlighted with kind of the powers of these technocrats that we're seeing, you know, the, the COVID era and the degree that it has you know, highlighted Anthony Fauci and, and kind of the public health you know, policy regime. Again, what we've seen right now with the Federal Reserve and the expanding role that it has in dictating the economic policy of the U.S. and by extending the world. You know, the fact that you have the CDC able to snap a finger and distort contracts between renters and landlords, right? I think that more people are waking up to the degree to which it's these unelected institutions that are really the effective decision makers, the degree to which they do not represent, again, either the left or right of the average American. And when you have periods of revolution and political instability on a structural level, it comes from that lack of consent of the governed. It comes from that lack of legitimacy. And I mean, that's what that 2020 election you know, bomb, when you have 70% of Trump supporters that question the election, I'm like, the, the way that that erodes the fabric of legitimacy, that combined with an energetic federal government, historically, this ends in chaos. Like, you know, this does not end well. And recently, one of the historical topics that I find myself very fascinated by is just the history of revolutions you know, in, in different nations. Once you start recognizing there that once you have that, that collapse of legitimacy, the degree to which politics is no longer defined by legal statutes and court decisions, but instead by raw emotion, politics at its best when it's Brutus after the death of Caesar, you know, changing history with a speech, right? Like that. And again, the way that out that, that can go into really dangerous situations, historically we've seen that can go into positive net, you know, net positive situations. But I think that the, the instability of this regime is something that a lot of the actual powers are, they're kind of panicking. I think that's why you're seeing these sort of overreaches and that, that could lead in the short term some very bad outcomes. You know, if you really see like the full war powers of the war on terror used against domestic terrorists here at home with a, you know, that being defined as, you know, being concerned about Fauci. That's short term, really, really, yeah, it can, can be a very dangerous situation. But I think it that's the sort of social environment that I can think can really change the structures of government um, in a way that you know you saw in the, the 30s, kind of saw in the progressive revolutions, a little bit environments are a little bit different, but that sort of major reform in American history. And again, how that that's something that could have a really bad outcomes. And that's again one of the reasons why I think it's important to engage in this sort of sphere. I also wanted to continue and ask about, you You can answer one or both of these questions, though, but I'm curious what role, here at the Faith and Economics podcast, we're, we're always talking about trying to relate the issues back to cultural changes and how is it that we go about sort of 
uh, changing the culture in a way that makes the culture conducive to good ideas. And specifically, we talk about this with reference to Christianity. And so we uh, here at Ottawa University, we're a Christian school. Personally, I'm a Christian. Uh, Russ is a good Lutheran. We have these conversations about how those... What really is a good Lutheran? <laughs> I have to stop you there. Uh, I, I, I am a Christian sinner, I guess, is where I'll hang my hat on. But okay, go ahead. Continue. Evidence of being a good Lutheran right there. <laughs> um, so I'm curious what role, twofold question here, what role you think the, the Christian faith plays in the political unfolding that's going to happen over the next few years? Also, I'm curious what role, you know, Christianity or, or what, whatever faith you claim or, or lack thereof plays in your personal life and influences your sort of uh, political strategies and your interest in politics. Religion is a topic that growing up, my family wasn't particularly religious. You know, my mom was a Baptist, but we didn't go to school regularly. My, my father was an Episcopalian. One of his big personal motivations was the battle over the 1928 prayer book. But I, I think he, he kind of lost, he, he lost a lot of uh, hope in the church and that kind of, he, we just didn't engage in sort of conversations a lot. Of course, you know, for a while, you know, as, as many libertarians do, you have your, your sort of Randian, you know, edgy Reddit, you know, sort of atheist sort of phase, which luckily didn't last too long. But I've been going to church, you know, the last 16 months for really the first time. I'm still in, in the process of figuring out exactly where I am within all the, 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 the Christian denominations. But one thing that's become vividly clear to me, for one, is the degree to which practical concepts of liberty are historically are so intertwined with Christianity. And that's, I think that it's also caused me to kind of revisit sort of classical liberalism to a, to a little, to a side degree. Like I still like the benefits and fruits of, of liberty and, you know, the importance of free exchange and all this, you know, intellectual discussion, all that sort of stuff. But I think that their classical liberalism, even in its most kind of sober form, can, you know, can be hijacked and kind of go into weird ways. And I, I think that one of the, you know, when, when you look back at, for example, the success of the West, the role of Judeo-Christian values as, you know, the vital organizational framework for society. You know, Ralph Rako has some very interesting stuff about, you know, what made the West rich, that it was those, those values itself, coupled with kind of, you know, what separated the American experiment from the French experiment. You know, the, the greater, you know, a lot of our values came from the Great Enlightenment, but a lot of our framework also came from, you know, the Great Awakening. You know, it, it was our rights as, you know, as God, you know, individuals made in the, the image of God that motivated a lot of the, the revolutionaries of this country's founding. And I, one of the things I think is very, very clear is that, you know, for one, the concept of like the separation of church and state, you know, that we've always kind of held as this, this great, you know, check against uh, tyranny, you know, it doesn't really work because, not to say that I, I want to you know, establish, you know, but what is created, I think, in the West is this vacuum where trying to divorce religious values from from way power is wielded generally creates a void that is filled then by other religions and 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 what i think is the main motivator of the militant left right now is a rejection of western civilization in all its forms which includes cr the christian aspect of it and and it's so this idea that oh i can be whatever you know i want to be there there is no limits to my ability as man you know i you know I'm, i can identify as a, a girl or a boy or a dog if it feels good, do it, you know, this, this hedonistic, you know, all these you know, longstanding critiques of kind of the, the slippery slope arguments against, you know, social liberalism in that sort of framework, a lot of those slippery slope arguments have proven out to be true over time. And I think that in an American right that doesn't take seriously Christianity, you know, e even if it is just the respect for Christian values without the 
uh, a religious spiritual aspect to it. Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises, for example, were you know, atheist or, or agnostic scholars that recognize the importance of, of Christianity for civilization. At the very least, you have to have that core within any sort of attempt for the American right, I think, to effectively combat the left, because the left has their own spiritual guide in this. And, and you can't win that sort of cultural war without a similar sort of power behind it. The good thing is that once you recognize that, then no matter how bad the headlines may look on a given day, you know, when you know you have God itself, you have God on your side, that is the, you know, sometimes the uplift that you kind of need in some of the headlines that come out. I have a question, though, because I seem to be picking up what I think is a kind of a meta narrative with what you're saying. And so I'd like to state it and then see if I, I have it right or wrong. So like when you mentioned teaching the victims of the Holocaust in uh, Florida schools and that that would be mandated and you noted that, you know, some libertarians get angry about that because they say, oh, well, we shouldn't be mandating what's being taught in schools anyway. And I think, you know, your argument there is something like, well, look, if, given that there are mandates for what we are teaching in schools, we should utilize that lever of power since it exists and is being used against us currently. And I think I'm also picking up when you're talking about, you know, religion, this idea that, look, this is a tool that we should not be afraid to use as a kind of force. I'm, and I don't mean as a, I mean more as a, you know, a tool, but it's kind of what you're getting at something like, given that we recognize that society is on this wrong kind of path, it would be dumb not to use all the tools available to us to try to get off that path. It would be like, you know, if you're an advocate of the Queensbury rules in boxing, you know, saying, well, I'm only going to fight by the Queensbury rules and somebody else saying, well, you know, your opponent, you know, has brass knuckles and there's 75 of them. So uh, the fact that you want to fight by the Queensbury rules, congratulations, you're going to lose. Is, is that close to your approach? Yes, to, to a certain extent. And this is something that I, I've, I've kind of changed over time about, or at least perhaps just taking the topic itself more seriously. But ultimately, if, if, to the degree that power exists, it's wielded to a specific end. And you know, if, if not the ends that you desire, then that's going to have consequences for you. And one of the aspects that I, you know, and often, you know, there's this, you know, you get the concern about, you know, Lord Acton's, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And I, I get that there's always that danger of power being miswielded and there's nothing worse than, you know, you know, you, you, you know there's, there's consequences, right, of, of living in a, in a powerful regime that, that is motivated by bad ideas. And so this is why, you know, the, the liberal framework has always been the focus on, you know, rule of laws over men creating constitutional frameworks, trying to create these, these very concise you know, legal precedents, trying to take the human element out of power. And the problem is, is that I don't think these things have proven to work, right? You know, the Constitution has not restrained the American government, the federal regime, to the limits of what it was enumerated to do. You know, we see activist judges being willing to use their robes to conduct political you know, policy that has nothing to do with concise legal argument and things like that. And so ultimately, if we try to, if we simply try to create, you know, frameworks of power that don't need a human element, and then those are then taken over by people that, sh that have views, you know, that are not workable, compatible with our own values, then all of that humility that we have with powers is going to be used against us. And so ultimately, what I think that requires is you need a society where those that have that sort of power and influence 
have the idea, you know, share our, share our, our framework, you know, share. And that is why I think that the decentralization aspect is such an important safeguard to this because, you know, what you ideally want is again, a society where it's, it's not that we need a universal utopia of liberty, you know, of Christian libertarians guide, you know, controlling the world. And then, you know, oh, every, you know, we'll have the end of history. No, I, I recognize that's not going to happen and it would be disastrous to try to make it happen. But if we can simply you know, allow for structures of power where the values of you know the people of Alabama or here in the Redneck Riviera or in Iowa or et cetera, Berkeley, California, New York, whatever, if those power structures are able to actually fulfill and, and rec- represent the values of the people of those areas, then you are going to get a government system that has a lot more faith, that, that, that has a lot more legitimacy because it actually derives from the values there. It's going to be a lot more effective generally. Now, at those times, an effective government implementing socialist policies is still going to lead to ruin, right? It, it, this does nothing to change the outcomes of specific policy ends. But hopefully, what you get is a situation where people recognize that you know the, the People's Republic of Berkeley has fallen to an absolute decay. We want to avoid that. You know, we, we've seen this kind of play out with the rise of kind of strong governor leadership and the rise of COVID. Right? You know, you have people fleeing from California to Texas and and to Florida and whatnot. But ultimately, the only reason you get those outcomes is that you have the, a decision maker like DeSantis wielding his judgment, not having to kowtow to DC to do it. And so that is where, you know, being able to have the right people in power, you know, ultimately is the safeguard of liberty. You just need those people to respect liberty. And that's why you, in in republics, when it's a lot more civic participation, that's fine, but that requires an educated populace that shares those values, right? And so that, I think one of the great uh, tragedies for civil society in general is, you know, when we stop talking about religious and politics, you know, being improper for dinner conversation, you know, back in the 1800s, religion and politics were kind of motivating factions of, of, of communities. Like, you know, if you look at the late 1800s politics, the voter turnout was super, super high because you had that civic engagement. Now, obviously, after that, you had changes in, in voting, you know, who, who can vote and things like that, that, you know, create some structural issues. But again, what you have is very politically motivated and energized societies. And I think that that was an aspect of making that, you know, some of the, some of the, the improvements of that society over what we saw in the 20th century. I kind of, kind of going on a few different tangents there, but I think that to a certain extent, you, you nailed what I was trying to get out of the, at the head. And I actually wanted to ask you one more question on that, but I think you anticipated that. I, you know, I think the, the big critique of this approach is something along the lines of like, you've got, it's the ring of power, right? And if you yeah. use it, it you, you mentioned the accent quote, corruption. But I think, you know, the decentralization aspect, you, you kind of anticipated the critique. That's the way out. If you decentralize enough, you can't have one ring to rule them all. There's, you know, a thousand rings and maybe some of them use them and some of them don't. Justin's giving me a weird look, so I don't know if he's uh, on board. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think Christianity to some extent, because we didn't have the state church, has reflected the outgrowth and the benefits of keeping local, right? That's why we have so many different denominations and free churches and factions grow within a church. The church splits off into two new churches or they start a new one or join another one. And we end up keeping Christianity as a whole based in, you know, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only savior. And then the rest of it's kind of details of what does communion look like? What does worship look like? And I think that's a big benefit to how the country could grow if we can get people to think that this one size fits all doesn't need to be there. We can let California be California and we can let Kansas be Kansas. So. Absolutely. And nothing just from an operational framework is, is that there's nothing that properly puts into context like your time preference for decision-making behavior 
quite like you know understanding you know fate of your soul for eternity right and so like what <laughs> and, and I, th- so this this goes kind of like you know there's a the kind of neo reactionary wing is is kind of you know interested in monarchy and things like that because of the way that oh well you know kings care about you know leaving off a good country for their their kids and whatever historically you know it doesn't quite always work out that way but i, I think that, that again having that framework that there's something higher than you yourself in this mortal existence I think that again, you look at the EU, for example, and the lack of Christianity that we were seeing throughout. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is, it's a, I mean, I, I think that again, the, the, the aspect of way that this reflects itself in a lot of technocratic policy comes from from again that that very nihilistic sort of existence. And and so again, in, in terms of just the way these sort of structural environments look from a variety of different things, like again, there's profound importance and and again at the very at the very very least having respect for the Christian values. And again, anything anyone hostile to that should not be trusted with power. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, this looks like a good place to wrap, though. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been a fun conversation. Yeah. And we'll put a link to the book in our show notes that you have and some other links to the Mises Institute and and, um, hope that other people, listeners can explore more about uh, what you do and what you have to say, because it's been it's been a great show. Well, if I can get one plug in, uh, if, if anyone is interested in a free copy of Economics in One Lesson, which is the best starting spot in economics out there, we are giving away free copies at the Mises Institute. You even pay for shipping and handling, all that fun stuff. Mises.org slash one lesson, and we'll get you out a, a nice hardback copy of Economics in One Lesson. Awesome. Yeah, that is a fantastic book that everyone should read. So, all right. Well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening and be sure to uh, give us a nice rating. If you want other people to uh, find us, it's a little easier on those search engines to do so when you leave some feedback. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.